0: Welcome back to the Daughters Without Moms podcast. Today, you'll hear Lori's story. Lori is an opera singer and performer. You'll enjoy both of these qualities as she shares the beautiful story of her mother, who had a profound impact on Lori, her family, and the communities she lived in. She touched so many lives in her brief 42 years of life. Today, we are sharing details about our upcoming virtual Daughters Without Moms Mother's Day event. The event will take place on May the 4th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can find sign up information in either my Facebook or Instagram accounts. Again, I sincerely appreciate the support I've received for the podcast. If you are enjoying listening, please remember to leave a rating and review. Hi, this is Beth, and welcome to another episode of the Daughters Without Moms podcast. Today, I have Lori Mirabal with me today, and Lori and I met through a coaching program that we both did last September, it was, for three months, and we were put in the same accountability pod. So Lori and I and five other women met every week for those three months, and um, some of us have continued to meet, but... We got to know each other pretty well during that process. And besides being a daughter without a mom, Lori is a woman of many, many talents. The most of which that I just love to hear is that she's an opera singer, which is just phenomenal. So I'm gonna allow Lori to introduce herself. Then she's gonna share her story. Then I'll follow up with some questions and we will finish with Lori telling you where you can find her and all of her beautiful things. So welcome Lori, I'm so happy that you're here.
1: Thank you, Beth. It's so nice to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this important journey for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know I was there when you were kind of conceptualizing it. So it's remarkable and inspiring uh, to see how far you've come along with it. And may you be continuously blessed with Mm -hmm. this endeavor because it is so important. It is so important, I have Mm -hmm. to say. my story, as I told you, I revealed to you in one of our sessions, I haven't really spoken out loud about my feelings around my mother's death in, you know, mother died in 1981, August 4, mm. 1981. And until we spoke about it in 2020. I never really spoke out loud about how I felt about mother's death. Um, And people don't really ask you, I think they're afraid. Mm -hmm. But uh, Mm -hmm. in any case, I am a professional opera singer, Um, did not expect to become that at all, was born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee, listening to Aretha Franklin and Mahalia Jackson and going to primitive Baptist churches with my great grandma and hearing them sing, wait in the water. And how I ended up singing opera is, (laughs) (laughs) You know, you know, it is just an amazing journey and I talk about that, but I wanted to begin this session talking about my mother, Mm -hmm. which is why we're here. And I think uh, I'm going to begin with her two favorite quotes. The first one is, you are a child of the universe, no less than the trees and the stars you have a right to be here and that was one of her favorite ones from Max Ehrman and her second one was from Khalil Gibran which is your children are not your children they come through you but are not of you and I think if you put those two together that pretty much sums up who my mother was and how she raised us which is kind of amazing when you consider she's a young African-American woman raised in the South, Nashville, Tennessee, in, you know, the 1940s, 50s, 60s. She was, her parents were, her, my grandfather was a minister and her mom was a domestic, which means she was a maid. She worked at, at hotels and, but I think also one of the biggest influences for my mother was my great grandma, who we call Granny, Hattie Jane Turner, Granny and Paul, which was Granny's husband. I think they had a huge influence on Mother and I loved them too. They, I loved all my grandparents, but Granny really had a huge influence and she took no mess. She took no mess from nobody. And Granny was also a domestic. Um, So that's, uh, that was how mother was raised with two, these two women who were domestics. Yet mother went on to get an edge, I think she was valedictorian of her class. She and my dad met in high school, became, fell in love I guess instantly, and they were married and then dad went to Vietnam. But almost immediately they started having babies which my mother was like, I always wanted to have lots of babies because I was an only child and I was so lonesome. And, you know, I think about that sometimes because, gee, what would they have done, you know, back then when mother was little other than she loved to read so she read a lot as many books as she could get her hands on and she instilled that love of reading and my brothers and myself, especially me. But she loved to read, and but, but there was no internet and Instagram. There was no cell phones or any way to keep in touch with anyone other than, you know, so she, I can imagine that she must have been so lonely. So, Mother said, I always wanted to have lots of babies. So, guess what? She had five my brothers, John Preston, Victor Terrence, and myself. And I'm the only girl. In the middle of five boys, I mean four boys. I'm sorry. Actually, we did lose a, a brother. You know, he was he was not he didn't make it. But there, so there would have been uh, five boys. But there were, I guess that was a Freudian slip, right? There were four, but there were four of us who did make five of us who did make it. And so mother somehow just became very civic minded. It was important to her to lift us up from where we her perception of the life she had led so she made sure we had every advantage that she could afford because she you know she was 17 they were 16 and or 17 and 17 when they were married they were very very young and they started having babies like right off the bat and, uh, you know, w- we're fortunate because we had so much extended family. And that's what you did, you know, You're, the grandparents stepped in. So you never, the grandparents, my dad's sisters and brothers. And so we never we never really had to have a babysitter. We rarely, I should say, had to have a babysitter outside of the family. But mother made sure that our big trip was that we would go to the library downtown Nashville and we would get to get a book, you know, and um, it was just, we got to ride the bus because of course we didn't have a car. So that was a big thing for us to get on the city bus and go down to the wonderful, big, huge library and take out books. And I think we had a limit. We could take out maybe three or four a piece. And we were just like, whoa. And when I think back on it, that's actually the first time I ever heard opera. And that's the first time because mother let us check out, she let me check out Hansel and Gretel. I don't know what attracted me to the opera version of Hansel and Gretel. I don't think I knew it was the opera version. I think I thought it was going to be just someone telling the story, storytelling. And it ended up being an operatic version, but I loved it. I loved singing along, you know, especially with the children's prayer. And then another thing I checked out, now don't ask me why. And I guess this speaks to maybe fate or destiny. I don't know. The Lord's plan, I don't know. But somehow I ended up on an aisle with actresses and I somehow pulled out the album with Dame Judith Anderson, who's a British actress, reciting the role of Medea. Medea, Greek drama, I think it's Euripides. And I, for some reason, just fell in love, I think. I looked at that and I looked at her costume and I was like, hmm. This is intriguing. And so I took it home and I must have listened to that album over and over and over again. And all of a sudden, I just wanted to speak like Dame Judith Anderson. I will look at the light and the sun this last time. You know, I just fell in love with the way she spoke and her, you know, the Greek drama. I fell in love with drama. At that point, so if you kind of if you if you put the two together, then it wasn't all that outrageous that I, at the end of the day in my as a as a teen as a young in my young early 20s late teens decided to go into opera because. How operatic was danger, you know I fell in love with that style of acting, you know the grand dames on the opera stage their wonderful roles that would speak to greek you know tragedy and i fell in love with the singing in hansel and gretel so kind of that was a preview of what my life would be and little did i know at the time but that was from our trips to the library so if you fast forward at that time mother was uh she worked it seems like she worked nights at a doctor's office but she wasn't a domestic it seems like she was an assistant somehow and i remember mother saying something about that's where she learned that you know you you have to love all babies because they come into the world with all kinds of issues and that they you know they can't help or that that they, they are they're just born that way they're born that way so um that was the first uh lesson in not, I don't want to say tolerance. I hate the word tolerance. But that was the first lesson I learned in just accepting people for who they are. Um, so, but, and that came from mother and dad, who dad was an artist. He was a young artist, but he eventually became a minister too. And mother uh, went to school and God bless her. She became, um, uh, she got her, went on to get her doctorate in early childhood education from Vanderbilt, George Peabody College for Teachers. (laughs) George Peabody College for Teachers. I remember she used to sing that song to us. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, that's where she uh, received her doctorate. And at the time, I remember her putting together a film, which I would I wish I could find the film, but it had it dealt with children as they grapple with racism and prejudice. And I remember, you know, she featured the song, anybody here has seen my old friend Martin? Can you tell me where he's gone? You know, uh, but it had this little boy. I remember, I never will forget this little boy going, he was a little white boy and they asked him, what is prejudice? And he says, I don't know what prejudice is. I think it's when somebody's sick. But I remember that film had an impact on me early on. And uh, mother, she became, she was uh, at one point she was the early childhood coordinator for the Metropolitan Board of Education. At one point she somehow, I and I guess she got this idea from the bookmobiles that used to come uh, sometime uh, in the towns Well, she did some research and she discovered that one of the reasons that little black children were not on the same par when they entered the school arena, the education arena as other children was because they weren't getting junior pre K pre K. Uh, And what why because two of the biggest reasons was because parents couldn't. um, They didn't have transportation. And they couldn't afford a babysitter. So if they had one one toddler and a, you know a baby in one hand and the toddler who needed the education. So mother somehow and I, I don't know if it was part of what she did through school, you know, as sort of a, a school project when she was in college, but she had a bus gutted out, um, and the bus was school on wheels. So the school would actually go into uh, the, uh, the housing projects where we actually we started out in the housing projects and then we kept moving up from the housing projects and then we were in a townhouse and then we were in a really nice suburb. But um, yeah, mother had that bus to come, go into that, those projects and mother's parents could actually bring the babies to have school for like an hour and a half and they could either stay if they wanted to and co-learn with the kids Or they could take that little baby back and for an hour and a half just have that little baby at home while the other child was so that was kind of a precursor to head start the head start program and um you know mother did stuff like that at one point she was the uh, campaign manager for a city councilman (laughs) she was just amazing she did a lot she wrote a book that's a second grade textbook And I've heard people, places and things, I can't, I cannot remember the exact name, but it was put out by Silver Burdett. And fast forward years later, I am working as an office temp at Simon & Schuster, and I happened to mention it to like the assistant to, I think his name, what was his name, Dick Simon was the head, and I happened to mention, I said, oh, you know, my mom wrote this second grade textbook, co-wrote. Um, called people places and things or something like that. And I sure would love to ha- get my hands on it because I, I remember us having one copy but. And she says oh well I'll look it up and she found it, and so she got five copies and I was able to send each of my brothers a copy and I still I have a copy even to this day in my house so now. And it was innovative because, at the time, um, it was a geography was it so no social studies. You would think I would know more about it. But um, it was different because it told a lot of different uh, multi ethnic perspectives about where we are and how we are. So it was innovative for that time because there were, it was like a precursor to a lot of the uh, books that are out now. But yeah, but that's that just gives you a little bit of an idea. And she's became a school principal, several different school principals. At one point, she was a principal for children at a school for children with special needs. And that's again how I developed respect for little kids especially because mother spoke with such glowing reviews about her students oh me she would tell me there was a little girl who had down syndrome and she was like oh and you know what she said today and oh do you know what she did oh she is just so smart and you know so that let me again it was a way to develop respect for People with special needs, I didn't look at them from that point on. Nobody, whether they had Down syndrome or whatever, some of the kids on the autistic spectrum that we work with now, I don't care how wealthy they are and how masked it is and wealth, the privilege that comes along with wealth. I just have such a healthy respect for those children because I know there is something going on there that we just don't know as educators and looking in from the outside we don't know what's going on with those kids we don't know the genius that exists inside those kids and mother is the one who helped me understand that because she just spoke so glowingly of her kids and especially this one little girl she was just so taken with her and she had down syndrome And mother was like oh do you know what she said today oh do you know what she did today And it was just like, wow, I sure do. I sure would like to meet her someday. That planted that seed early on as well. And then by the time she, uh, just before she died, she was principal of a school for, it was, they were just experimenting with schools for gifted kids, you know, and she was the high school principal of a school for gifted, talented and gifted children. And that was the summer she died That was the summer and she died very I had I was at the University of Memphis I had just graduated mother was able to see me be very successful, because I had gotten by the grace of the Lord. I had gotten into uh, bubbling brown sugar, which was a national touring company of a show that had won multiple Tony's on broadway. I had somehow. God, and I went to New York and audition for that, which is a funny story all itself, <laughs> because <laughs> I went and, you know, because my theater teacher at the University of Memphis really thought I was very talented. So he said, you know, I, I want you to, I've been speaking about you to some of my people in, broad, on broad, in, in the Broadway community. And I, I was a sophomore at that time, going into my junior year, I think. And he said, um, I really want you to go there in audition for, you know, this show called bubbling brown sugar which stars the legendary cab Calloway. Well, first of all, I didn't really know who Cap Calloway was, you know, I knew I knew him from the cartoons and the Heidi 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 Ho. I kind of knew that my mother on the other hand when I said mother. Do you know who this person, um, I have an an opportunity to go to to New York City and audition for a show with this guy named Cab Calloway my mother's like oh lordy lordy. (laughs) She was so excited, but you know mother was like well, you know, unfortunately I don't have the money at this time to send you so a really dear dear friend of mine Alvin Walker, who was uh, one of my best friends his mother, who was a school teacher paid for me to take the Greyhound bus with my friend, Martrin, and I remember Martrin and I sang the whole way up on the Greyhound bus. I'm sure those people were like, either they were happy to have the entertainment, the free entertainment, or they were like, I'll be so glad when these kids get off the bus, or when I can get off this bus, I don't have to listen to these kids singing all the way. So we got up there and we, um, you know, first you had to do the dance audition. Well, Martin was a marvelous dancer, so he's just like woo, getting there i'm like Lucille ball in that ballet episode. that's my day, I mean I had taken dance, but I w- wouldn't call myself a dancer and so uh, as I kind of sleeked up, you know slunk out of the, the room, the, the, the choreographer said to me, you know you need to lose some weight, because I was a little plump and I was like. I know and I wasn't offended by her saying that I know I needed to lose some weight especially for a dancer. I was okay for anybody else other than a skinny dancer, you know, very thin. But I was like, yeah, I know I need to lose some weight. But you know what? I'm really more of an actress and a singer. She says, "Oh, you sing? Well then why don't you come back to the singers audition this afternoon?" So, okay, again, it's the grace of the divine there because suppose we had never had that conversation, she would think I'm just a Plump dancer, you know, she wouldn't, and who can't dance, you know. Uh, but so I came back to the, um, I went back to the singers audition. I thought I was expecting better singing from New York, you know. So, but when I, and when I opened my mouth to sing, the guy on the piano bench was, he literally, he feigned, he faked falling off the bench. And he says, "I was wondering if I was gonna hear some real singing today." And that was before opera days. I would—I think—I sang. I love to sit. It was Pearly hear him dream he tells it like a story he talks about a better time happy days and glory and i don't know um you know but the guy i don't know where i got that voice from when i was a little you know so young but that's what that's what i sang for him and he was like wow yeah and then um The people who were behind the desk you know they started going "Oh, you know I heard that they were conferring with each other (laughs) and that's what I knew. That's when I knew I had gotten the job actually because they were the whole energy of the room transformed and that's from that point on whenever that would happen. In an audition I knew I had gotten the job, because the energy transforms in the judges or the people who are choose the people who are casting the energy changes from like what have you got got to show us to "Ooh, well, we you know she can do this and she can do that and she and sure enough. Uh, about I went back home on the bus. With Martin, and both of us have felt pretty good because Martin had nailed his dance auditions because as I said he was a phenomenal dancer. And I felt good about my singing audition and at that point I was like whether I get it or not, I know I sang, you know, I know that's something I can do, you know, and so when I got when I got back home maybe about two days later, um, I did get the call and I got the contract to sing the role of a young Ella Fitzgerald in bubbling brown sugar alongside cab calloway and i say all of this to go back to mother mother got a chance to see me be that kind of successful and one of the last things she got a chance to do i actually paid for her to come to see me when the because it was a national tour and when we got to uh washington i paid for mother to come and see the show in washington And of all things, Cab, at that point, Cab and his wife, Nuffy, they, Cab loved, you know, he just kind of took me under his wings and he told people she's going to be a star one day, you know, he really, you know, really, and that gave me a lot of, um, you know, empowerment, it gave me a lot of sense that, okay, maybe I can do this, if this great star, if Cab Calloway is saying that I'm good, I must be okay, so, um, but, Cab, his wife, Nuffy, and I were sitting around. uh, We were having dinner, and my mother got a chance to join us. So their mother was with Cab Calloway, who was one of her heroes, someone she grew up watching on television. Mother was able to dine with us, mother, Nuffy, Cab, and myself. And when people would come up to the table and ask for Cab's autograph. Cab would say, "You better get this young lady's autograph too, because she's going to be big one day." And so mother got a chance to witness that. Who knew? Not not very long after that, a a year later, in fact, she she would die, and she died very suddenly. Um, I was living in Memphis in an apartment complex, and I remember just before that she had cleaned the house like. The house was so spotless. And she had put her cedar chest at the foot of my bed. And the last conversation I had with her, she said, you know, I love you very much. And a mother's love will follow you everywhere you go. And it's funny how you remember all the details. I was watching Jane Fonda in Clute that night before she died. And I think I had called her because I was in the apartment by myself, and I was like, "I'm a little, I'm a little scared, mom, to be here in this apartment." And she said, "Well, do you have uh, maybe some a nightlight that you could, or just sleep with the light on?" She said, "Why don't you sleep with the light on?" And I, and I, and and that's what I believe I did. But I just remember Clute was on, and it was, and I was speaking with her, and that was the last conversation I had. Was she says, "I love you very much," and a mother's love will follow you everywhere you go. And even before that, I remember when my dad, I didn't drive at the time, my dad was taking me down to Memphis. And for some reason, dad drove me down. But even just before that, uh, that last time I saw her personally, she says, you know, Lori, I really hate to see you go this time. Yeah. She said, I really hate to see you go. And then there was an incident even before that, like a year or so earlier than that, where both of us were just kind of, we cried because we didn't, I don't know, it was like a knowing, it it was like a knowing that we wouldn't have each other for long. And and I remember my brother, Victor, my mother and I cried during that departure. And my brother, Victor said, Lori, is there something I should know? Because my brother's very sensitive. My brother, Victor, who's uh, two years younger, he was like, Lori, is there something I should should know? And I, I couldn't even explain it to him. I was like, no, I, I don't know. But then, you know, two years later, when mother was uh, said, I, I really hate to see you go this time. And I went on down to Memphis. And I remember her that night conversation, having that with her. Then the next morning I got up and I was, I opened my dresser drawer and I saw a black scarf, because I had my scarves at the top, and some said, you're gonna have to wear this black soon. And I slammed, I remember slamming that, I slammed it, I was like, no, no. But, and then I I didn't pay any attention. I was like, you're being silly, this is foolish. But then I went on, and at that time, I was working part-time at our school bookstore. And I remember the dean of students came into the bookstore and he knew mother. And I remember him saying, just kind of, he said, how are you? I was like, I'm fine. He said, have you spoken with your mom lately? And okay, it seemed like a normal conversation that he knew my mom. So I figured, I was like, no. And he said, well, you might have to go home soon. So he knew, but he didn't want to tell me. So somehow they called my friend Alvin, whose mom paid for me to go. And Alvin his, and his boyfriend Mark came to the bookstore and they both were red-eyed. And I was like, what's going on? And I thought maybe something had happened with Alvin's mother or dad or Mark's parents. And they said, they didn't even tell me and that they was like, Lori, you've got to come with us. And they just kind of drug me out of the bookstore. And at this time, I'm beginning to get it. I'm like, something ha- has happened to my mom, I bet you. And I, and I was like, don't let it be my mom. Don't let it be my mom. And I, I'm a, and I hate that I say, I was like, let it be dad, but don't let it be my mom. Don't let it be mother. Please don't let it be mother. And they, Alvin and Mark, did not have the courage to tell me in the car they waited. At the time, I was living with a lady named Sarah. Uh, she was an older white lady. We were really, really good friends. And I was staying with Sarah. And when I got to Sarah's house, no, wait, I wasn't with Sarah. I was in my own apartment, but I was they took me to Sarah because I had stayed with Sarah for a little while while I was looking for my apartment. But at that time, I was in my apartment, but Sarah and I were very close. So they figured if anybody could tell me, it, it should have been Sarah. So, you know, and so they took me to Sarah's house, Sarah's little apartment. And Sarah, well, bless her little tiny little heart. She was a little tiny lady. She said, Lori, your mom. And I was like, no, 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 no. And that's when I lost it. That's when I was like, no. And, you know, Mark and Alvin, they were there they, they lost it too, you know, but they were with me and Sarah, she was just, we, all of us were, you know, just lost it at the time. And then I called home and, um, I think it was my grandma Millie maybe answered the phone and, uh, she said, yeah, yeah. And I said, what happened? And she said it was an aortic aneurysm. You know, there's nothing they could have done. So she died very suddenly. So, um, you know, my brother, she was, she was, it's like, she was, well, she had been to work that day and had come home. And then, um, my brother had found her slumped over in her car and he took her to the, he took her to the hospital. Uh, And, and she, she never, she never recovered. And my best friend at the time, Jan, Jan said, uh, Lori, you know, she was working as a something in the hospital. And she said, I heard them call a cold blue on this young woman. And the guy, you know, one of my friends, he, he was like, she's pretty, she's a beautiful young woman. Cause my mother was forty-two when she died, but she looked maybe in her thirties. Could have even been in her late twenties. She looked very young. And he was. She was like, "What?" And she she knew Jan knew, cause she knew they had admitted my mother. So when they called a code blue on a young black woman, Jan almost knew it was mother. So Jan told me um, that you know mother had passed away. You know, so, and it's interesting, the people who came to the house when mother died, uh, people who, my brother was married to a white girl named Kathy, who's my wonderful sister-in-law, and they've been married for all these years. Gosh, oh my gosh, they've been married a long time. Mm -hmm. But when John L. and Kathy were going to get married, Kathy's mom and dad threatened to disown her and take away her inheritance and all that stuff, and... My mom and dad went over to visit Kathy's parents just to see what kind of people they were and say this is who we are and if our if our kids want to get married. And I know nowadays that sounds silly because you know there are so many interracial or biracial and multiracial and whatever co- combinations, but then it was a big deal especially down south in Nashville. Mm-hmm. And Kathy said the ironic thing is that her parents had always taught her to, they, she'd grown up to love all people, to be kind to all people. And then also, you know, my brother Preston was a professional football player and they had always followed Preston's career. And Kathy was like, well, they love Preston. And so, but now I'm marrying his brother. It's like, no, what are you doing? So she said, "But anyway, my mother ended up throwing getting their wedding, you know doing kathy 's wedding because she was like, I probably will never get your wedding, Lori, because I sure wasn't interested in going in that direction, <laughs> but so Mother threw Kathy a very lovely wedding, and kathy's parents didn't come and but I'm saying all this to say that when mother died, kathy's mother was in our home serving people and giving lemonade and what saying, whatever I can do, just, you know, let me know. And so, and then at my wedding, because I went back home to Nashville to get married at the church where we buried my mother, Kathy's father was the first one on the back pew. And he stood up, he says, I just want to be the first person to give you a hug. I wasn't at my daughter's wedding, but I'm here for you. So it just goes to show you how people can have a change of heart, People can really find that love that is within all of us. They can find it, you know. And um, yeah, so that and and uh, mother's funeral was attended by. She mother was an AKA, which is a women's. It's a black women's sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha. Yep. I never wanted to pledge, but mother pledged when she was a the. What do they call the career chapter or whatever, graduate chapter? And so, what was very touching about that is the Alpha Kappa Alphas were the ceremony that they do for people who die. You know, they put a rose. Each of them places a rose in the coffin, and it was just so poignant to see them there. Mm-hmm. It was my two of my 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 friend Marvin uh, was saying at the wedding. I mean, at the funeral. I, people mix that up, don't they? They say funeral and wedding. My friend, um, John, who was the one who got me into opera, he sang at the funeral. And um, everybody, the yard was filled to the brim. People couldn't even get in and sit in the church. The church was full, but all the people who mother had helped were all out in the churchyard. The churchyard was full and the, the the um, church itself was full, it just overflowed with the people who mother has, uh, whose lives Mother had touched. Yeah, she certainly left a legacy. And as I said, the thing that empowered me the most and left it open for me to do what I needed to do. So I just kind of, after those years after, for about seven years, I didn't really feel myself and maybe i still don't maybe there are edges i mean this is the first time i've cried retelling my mother's story that i've allowed myself to go that far into how i feel how i felt at that time i've never never had that opportunity so thank you for bringing that you know helping me to get in touch with that cuz i have a feeling that that was preventing a lot of things from hap- you know going forward uh, mm-hmm. Now on a mm-hmm. very deep spiritual level, so I feel like that's another really great thing uh, about your 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 shows. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Um, but because for a long time after that, I just kind of perfunctorily went through the motions. But I I don't think I felt for a long time really. I didn't allow myself to really feel. I was very stoic. And, but just kept going through the motions because I thought mother would not want me to stop. You know, so I continued to go to school and-
0: Look at that, I just wrote that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that is what she did. She left that legacy, uh, Went, ended up going to Manhattan School of Music to get a, oh, got a job singing opera with uh, Charlotte Opera And there I met a teacher who told me about Manhattan School of Music because I didn't feel like I was ever fully formed as an opera singer. So I went to Manhattan School of Music with a scholarship from Oprah. Oprah is a Nashville woman. And she, uh, we, we had met years ago when I was, years previous, previous to that, this, we might have something here, especially because, and I, one of the things I was saying to you earlier is when my daughter was born, I got married and, you know, throughout the years and married, and we've been married now over, about 29 years, 30 years to mm-hmm. show my poor husband who just puts up with all my singing, you know. I'm sure there are times when he just wishes I'd just shut up. And lately when I've been practicing, he walks the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Every time he hears me start. <laughs> then I hear, the, I hear the door open and gets the leash and he's like, I'm, I'm out of here. Bye. I'm out of here for the next 30 minutes. I'm gonna take a long walk. But um yeah, so I got married and Joe and I, eight years into our marriage, we had our baby daughter, Ileana. And um so when she was and as I was saying to you earlier, Beth, it's like when she was born, I just couldn't imagine ever leaving her side. I just couldn't imagine, and I just overindulged her, I wouldn't let her cry through the night. It was like that first night, I sang the vegan lead Brahms, Guten Abend, guten Nacht. I sang that to my baby daughter that night. And I'm sure again, Joe was like, oh. And at one point he finally he said, you know, you can't keep this up all night. <laughs> <laughs> but anytime she would start to cry, I would sing to her and uh you know just would not let her and i think she was one of those we had one of those european beds you know how they allow the babies the the kids to sleep with them for a long 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 time that's how it was with eliana i don't think she was weaned out of our bed until she was maybe 10 really literally but then i heard some famous author say she slept with her parents until she was about 10 and i was like oh okay then i haven't i haven't ruined my babe my poor baby but uh yeah i mean now this young lady but at the time when she was little i was like i'm not i would rather not even continue to pursue a singing career if that means i have to be away from my baby and so my my husband was like well if you feel like that then we'll bring you know my mom can come your mom, you know your stepmom can come you know lots of different people can come and help take care of the baby uh and sure enough opera companies were very lenient you know they were like i, I won't even say lenient but um they allowed the space and that's one thing i didn't realize that you could say to them hey um if i come we've got i'm bringing my daughter And a whole entourage, I was at a, I was in a talented, Miss Talented Teen Tennessee pageant, and Oprah was working at WVOL, which was the sole radio station, and she came to interview me after the pageant. So we had kind of connected there, but we didn't stay in contact, but through some connections, she ended up paying for me to go to Manhattan School of Music for the first year. And then I got scholarships and stuff to, and grants and stuff to get to finish it off. But I ended up getting a master's from Manhattan School of Music. And then I got into the really prestigious Juilliard. By the grace of the Lord, I got into the Juilliard Opera Center program, which people literally uh, tried to get into that program from all over the world. And at that time, they were only accepting five new people into the program. And so again, it was a it was a blessing, it was divine providence. And I got into that program. And then um, after Juilliard, I just started performing a great deal. And then a friend invited me to go into a school. I was singing Carmen, cause I was a mezzo soprano but I'm a soprano, mezzo, I mean, you know nobody really knows the difference between a mezzo soprano and a soprano. But um, I was singing Carmens throughout Europe and I had just come home on it for a rest, and my dear, dear friend, David Maiulo, who's a pianist and a conductor, he said, you know, Laurie, I've been asked to go into a school and present opera to kids. I'm wondering if you'll go in with me and, and you know, we could talk about opera. And I was like, oh, well, what we, because I had had some training in opera outreach with Charlotte Opera. So I said, you know what, I could dress up as Carmen and take my castanets. Why don't we tell retell the story of Carmen while I sing and dance? I'll sing and dance songs from the aria. I mean, from the opera, and then we'll, uh, you know, let's do it like that. Well, the kids loved it, and the parents in the audience, and the teachers, and I loved it. I was like, (laughs) oh, I love that. I love this experience. And so I was like, hmm. And they actually would accommodate you know so instead of your one bedroom apartment that they might have given you they gave you a house or they gave you you know like a two bedroom or you know they gave you a bigger place to stay so that they would accommodate your family and some of them even would say oh we love families out here yes please your husband bring everybody you know so we i started traveling mostly with my mother-in-law which at the time, you know, I hadn't, I didn't know, but she said, "Lori, she's my husband's Puerto Rican." She was like, "I always wanted to travel, you know." So she said that throughout her life, she always dreamed of traveling, and like now, it's like, see, as my great, as my aunt, Doc, they would say, "God is good, ain't he, honey?" Because she got a chance to travel, and I got a chance to have someone who I, whom I loved and who I loved, knew loved that child, because my. Oh my gosh, talk about indulging. So, you know, so Joe's mom would come a lot of the times. So I could be at ease. I didn't have to worry about when I went to rehearsals or when I had a performance. I didn't have to worry about what was going on at home with my baby. And that's the only way I did it, uh, was able to travel. Um, And then when Joe's mom died, that was another very hurt. You know, it was almost almost like reliving the hurt from my mom's uh death but the difference is we were there with her all the family was around my mother-in-law aurelia Mm -hmm. as she was that's one thing i love about joe's mom joe's family is that they're so they come together they're very family centered family focused and when she was dying, everybody was around her, surrounding her, stroking her, singing to her, you know, playing music for her. And thank God that happened in December, that happened before COVID, the year before COVID, because we would not have had, she wouldn't have had that quality, that experience, you know, a year later. Mm-hmm. She, did, she died on the eve of her 99th birthday. So she lived a long, 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 long good life to the point where she just didn't wanna, she was like, you know, I don't wanna, I don't wanna live like this anymore. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, but that was another um, tragic thing. But I have to say in terms of uh, what my, I wouldn't say advice because, who likes advice, but I would invite people to think about uh, with regard to dealing with their own death situations is they don't listen to other people with regard to timeline when you should, like if someone should say snap out of it, which I don't think anybody would be, but there are variations of snap out of it you know, but I would just say, you've got to, you've got to do you when it comes to dealing with death. And there is no timeline. You, you just heard me after what? Mother died in 81. It is 2021. And I just fully expressed the deep emotion mm-hmm. that I felt. So I feel like my, what I, how I chose to deal with it. I'm not saying it was the best way. I just kept going i kept moving i kept moving i thought that was what mother would want i kept moving kept moving kept moving i didn't stop my life i didn't okay. abort my life and i know very strongly that mother would have that's how she would have wanted me to to go forward and for me i hold on to her first quote you are a child of the universe no less than the trees and the stars, you have a right to be here. And that's what sustains me. That's what empowers me.
0: What a blessing that you have those two sayings from her.
1: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: And as a music educator, because ah. now I'm not only do I continue to, again, by the divine grace, I continue to perform even virtually, just before COVID, I was about to um, do a one-woman show called, believe it or not, Charmed Life, from soul singing to opera star. But I talk about star in that we are all part of that stuff. We are all star stuff. It's not something we evolve into, but it is something we are. Mm -hmm. So I kind of grapple with that throughout the course of my presentation. But I was about to do that at uh, urban stages in New York City, just before the producer came to me and said, I'm so sorry, Lori, we have to, you know, we can't do your show, we've got to, we were in previews for it, so I was (sighs) like, ah, but it's all good, Uh, you know, it's all going to come back around, Uh, I was also about to do a show which now I'm in rehearsals for where it's a documentary film about a woman named Clara Brown. Clara was born a slave, or born enslaved I should say, and became one of the wealthiest women in Colorado in the early 1800s. So I was privileged to sing the role of Clara in an opera about her life called Gabriel's Daughter at Central City, Colorado in the early, in 2003. And so one of my dear friends, who's a video producer, Sharon Shepard Levine and I have been, we were mothers when I got that role. We were sitting around a round table for PTA moms talking about jobs that Sharon said, well, what are you getting ready to do? And I said, oh, I'm getting ready to go out to Colorado and sing this role. Of this woman named Clara Brown, and i ever since that conversation, we decided we wanted to somehow figure out a way to combine uh, our forces and tell her story. So, as fate would have it, we are now in the process of uh, doing a documentary film. We're in, re- you know, we have hired all the talent, and we have begun the interviews with the creative team behind it. Uh, we've apl- we're applying for a grant right now. Uh, which uh, hopefully prayerfully will get that grant. And uh, and another uh, leg- legacy project I'm working on, because I consider Clara, telling Clara's story is a legacy project. Mm-hmm. Um, the other project that I'm working on is, um, I've always wanted, you know this Beth, because I talked with the group about it. I've always wanted to have my own children's television show about making opera soup, how, you know, in in a fun, and telling the story in a fun way. But even beyond that, I'd love to have my own children's television network where we retell stories in a more multi-ethnic way, opera stories. Um, And so um, opera stories for kids more specifically. But I have a whole idea of how that network would run, and it wouldn't just be opera stories, it would be, uh, but it would be multi-ethnic quality, shows that have a lot of integrity and that embrace all of us as a human race. Um, And, but anyway, so I applied for a fellowship, which I won't hear from the Sesame Workshop Fellowship, which if I get the fellowship, I will get a chance to um, work with people from Sesame and Disney and Pixar to develop my Making Opera Soup script. But I have an agenda beyond that. And so, prayerfully, that's another fellowship uh, that I will, I will get and I won't hear from them until April first. Okay. So Mm -hmm. that is what I'm up to. And I just I think I told you I just did I did a book about my life because kids were always asking, how did you become an opera singer? So I wrote this children's book and it's called from soul singing to opera soup. And uh, then I did a recording. My daughter and I used to snuggle together and read Goodnight Moon. And I always wondered by Margaret Weiss Brown and I wondered what happened that day in that room in the great green room with the telephone and the red balloon and the picture, what had happened? That always was curious, what's the backstory? So I decided to give those characters and images a backstory. And I put them in the town of Solfeggio, with a, a, Prominent opera singer, <laughs> <laughs> Musetta Treble. And uh, I called it Musetta's Musical Storytime original stories with melodies from around the world. And I released that recording in 2019. So uh, recently uh, during COVID, I had a progressive theater, which is a company here in, in New Jersey, approached me to do a show. And I was like, it would be fun to put that on its feet, because I I saw it with animation and stuff like that, and um, so that show is going to be streaming sometime very, very soon, so something to be on the lookout for, and it's called, it's a progressive theater.com is the company that you can go on their website and get purchase tickets, which are minimal, they don't cost a lot lot of money. But all of this stuff should be accessible uh, through my website, which is lauriebrownmirable.com.
0: Great. Great. And I will put that in the show notes. Um, So if anybody is is listening to this and unable to uh, write it down, we will have all of Lori's information available for you in the show notes. Um, I am just I am just um, so thoroughly impressed with what your mom was able to impart on you and your four brothers, mm-hmm. even at, at dying at 42 years old. Wow. Like wait, I I held my notebook up to you because I take a lot of notes while people are talking. And <laughs> before you said it, that's I wrote it and starred it twice because, wow, like what, you know, after losing a mom, like I, I think a lot about what type of legacy I wanna leave, but I don't think that your mom your mom wasn't operating from that sort of platform. She was mm-hmm. just being who she was. And when you just, when you um, went through her history and all of the things that she did and all the people that she reached, in addition to you and your four brothers, mm-hmm. the schools mm-hmm. and the students and the special needs. And um, I mean, I, I think that's a story that somehow you like, that you should, because you have access to all of the ways to do it um, from the books that she did to the, the bus that she created, mm-hmm. um, School on Wheels. Like, I mean, wow, wow. Um, and the, the many specific points where you had, you know, the grace of the divine, um, you've had several, several of those where you can look back and say that, you know, like most people would have been offended by the conversation of you're a little plump or you need to lose a little weight, but that <laughs> led into the audition for that, you know what I mean? So it's, 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 it's how we look at things and it's our perspective. Um, and so I know that you have certainly put a lot of hard work and been intentional about your career and your journey, but also the fact that there has been a lot of divine intervention for you um, Amen. And I find it with everything we've been through in the past year, to, to go back to these things that happened 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, and this the same rules still apply. Treat each other with respect. Be accepting of others provide help, love. You said love so many times, um, you know, about, about the kind of person that your mother was. It's foundational kind of stuff, but I think a lot of times it's real easy for us to talk about all those things, but it's the walking the walk that's the hard part. And what an amazing example she was for you and your family and, and the communities that she was
1: in. What an example of a human being to... To, to have, I was privileged. And again, by the grace of D- the divine, I had her as a mom mm-hmm. and I had my dad as a dad. Mm-hmm. And with regard to love, I think that's another reason I love the story of Clara Brown so much because she loved in spite of the fact that all of her family was sold away from her at auction. Uh, she had a daughter, she had twin girls, one died one lived but was sold away very shortly. At the age of 10, she was sold away. And throughout her whole entire life, she said, I will one day be reunited with my daughter. But in the meantime, she became a laundress and helped every, and through her laundry business, she became very wealthy. And when people, um, she decided to go with, In when she was freed, she decided to hitch a ride onto the a wagon trains going out West, who were those people were looking for gold. So in the meantime, she would uh, not only would she walk and she do, she promised that she'd do the meals, she'd do the laundry, she'd do the cooking and cleaning and all that. She walked all the way to Colorado alongside a wagon train and did these things. When she got there, she set up a laundry business it became very extremely successful at a time when, you know, during reconstruction, when black people couldn't get jobs and women couldn't get jobs, other than right. being, you know, prostitutes in a bravo. But she became a laundress and she uh, would n- set up people when the Welsh miners who built that famous opera house that is now standing at cent- in Central City, um, when they would come in, or the Swedish ma- miners, she would grubstake them, which means that she would give them money so that they could have the tools to pan for gold. And then when they struck it rich, they would give her a percentage. Okay. And, and then she would also bring um, people, some of the, uh, her enslaved relatives up or friends, you know, out to Colorado and help them get set up. And she also set up the first Methodist church out there. She was a very, uh, very religious woman, spiritual woman. And um, she knew a lot about herbs and stuff. So she would, uh, was the doctor, became the doctor. So she had a lot of uh, love for people. And then in return, people had a lot of love for her. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons I think I continue to pursue this story and want to tell it. Because I feel like we're living in a world where we can use this kind of inspiration especially in in this kind of, you how at the end of the night at the opera, not only is she reunited with her daughter, Eliza Jane, the audience at that time, filled with men, women of all ethnicities. You could hear them crying, all of them, men, women. And when I came out to take my bow as Clara, I don't even think it was me at that time. I think I'm embodying Clara. And when I came out to take my bow, they unanimously stood in an outpouring of human compassion, human, unifying human compassion. That's what her life, that's what that opera, that's what that time in my life brought about. And that is why it is imperative for me to leave that as one of my legacy projects to the world, because I'm not one to be out there protesting. I think that, that some do need to do that. I um, 100% for those mm-hmm. people who are out there on the battlefield going, this is wrong people. Mm-hmm. But that's not my medium. Right. I am a singer right. and I can use my, what I do to help people, to unify people to help us see each other, to share
0: the good stories that we aren't always told anymore. Those aren't, you know, um, the stories that are shared in mainline media and uh, social media and things like that. So kudos to you for using your influence in that area and the gifts and the talents that you have uh, to share those kinds of things and what a legacy that will be. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I'm going to wrap it up here. Thanks to everyone for listening, Lori. Thank you so much for being here. Um, If Lori mentioned anything, we will put it in the show notes so you can find that wherever you are listening to this podcast. And uh, we will continue to follow Lori's journey. And I'll help share some things that she, once things become live, I will share them in the Daughters Without Moms group so that we can
1: continue to journey with you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Blessings.
0: If you'd like more information on my thoughts about the grief journey, please visit my website, yourgriefjourney.com. If you'd be interested in being interviewed for a podcast, please send me an email to daughterswithoutmoms at gmail.com.